things you own end up owning you. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to the podcast. You've been on here before. We did this and we fucked it up. I clearly fucked it up. I'm sorry. We're doing it another shot um, or giving it another shot. So yeah, um, I'm excited. I'm happy to have you here. Um, Thank you. So listen, let's get right to it. All right. You have or have been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. (laughs) Yes. So that is indeed how I entered into the whole wonderful world of health, nutrition, whatever, (laughs) like online vortex of like information, misinformation, (laughs) nonsense is happening that we're both in. Um, But yeah, so I, I figured to start, maybe I should give a little just brief background about like who I am and like what my, what my background is. Um, yeah. So just so that people have a little bit of context about who I am, because I don't know, I feel like anytime I'm listening to somebody that I don't know, I'm always kind of wondering like, oh, like what, who is this person? Yeah. Um, so I, my educational background, um, I have a degree in nutrition. So I studied nutritional biochemistry in college, which I only did because of the aforementioned diagnosis. I was sick and was just wildly clamoring around trying to figure out how to solve my problems and got totally sucked into the world of nutrition and made that my degree choice. Um, I had the opportunity to be a research assistant in a couple different labs, not that much, but enough to give me, to let me dip my toes in the water of bench science and of clinical science. Um, I was a research assistant for Chris Kresser for a while. So Hmm. had a, right. (laughs) Big name. That was a big name back in the, I mean, now he's, I don't know if he's falling. I'm sure he's still around, but yeah, he's not quite as popular these days. I feel like. Yeah. He definitely was. I thought he was a huge name when I started working for him and I was very starstruck. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was a fun position, but got a lot of experience just reading scientific journals and writing about health and writing about science during that time. Um, So all that to say, I have a pretty solid grounding in science, but I don't have any higher education. I've never worked with patients or anything like that. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, And at the same time, it's not like just a Instagram kind of Facebook uh, post uh, following those sort of health uh, nutrition advice kind of things. So you've actually studied it in school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And if anybody has ever been to my website, you'll see that I will do these little research projects for myself where I kind of disappear for three months and like read everything there is to know on a topic and then write a ridiculously long post about it that nobody will ever read. So I've done that recently on things like heart rate variability and something called polyvagal theory, which also has to do with the autonomic nervous system, which is spoiler alert, kind of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, and yeah, so I have, um, just little, I'll, I'll get really into a certain interest and 
really dig down deep. Um, but just zooming out a little bit, I, I don't belong to any camp. I don't really have, I'm not like on a side. I'm not, I don't, ha I don't ascribe to any specific like diet framework. I'm not pro Western medicine or anti Western medicine. I'm, uh, I don't know. I feel like it's important to kind of, or helpful to clarify that because I feel like people sometimes categorize. Yeah. People love new... to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they love to categorize like, I oh, mean, at the is same she time, one of us or one of them? Yeah. It makes life a little bit easier that way. But at the same time, it's life is not black and white, you know, people right. say that, but sometimes they forget that. So it's good yeah. to hear that you have a good, you know, holistic view, I guess, or whatever, little yeah. zoomed out kind of view. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah, let's, let's, as far as like taking you back to your diagnosis, it's just interesting to me because besides you, like I know three other people in my life that have had uh, either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. I mean, it does yeah. seem to be like a very popular, <laughs> very common, <laughs> common thing these days. And the more very like, popular, very in demand, very, very in demand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like a very common thing, man. And it's, um, yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly. So in a sense, I was kind of like a, I don't know, a trendsetter. I, cause <laughs> I, I was diagnosed when I was 14 and I'm 28 now, almost 29. So mm -hmm. it's uh, 15 years ago, 14, 14, 15 years ago. Um, and the, the health and treatment landscape is quite different in a lot of ways now from when I was diagnosed and similar in others. Um, but yeah. Anyway. Um, and you mean like, even as far as going to the doctor, it's, it's not yeah. what, how, how they used to treat it back then and how they treat mm. it now has already changed. You're saying that much, you know, the, that's one thing I'm unfortunately a little out of touch with, um, because I've been out of the main medical system for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as I know, the general treatment and prognosis is still pretty similar, which is, uh, it's kind of rough. So basically when you get diagnosed, they initially put you on generally some kind of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. to just kind of, because, so for anybody who doesn't know, ulcerative colitis is an autoimmune disease, um, where your body attacks the cells in your colon. Crohn's disease is very similar. The only difference is that your body can attack different places throughout your digestive tract. So um, people with Crohn's often have like really bad inflammation in their ileum, for instance, of mm. their small intestine. It can even go up as far as their mouth mm. or yeah. Yeah, esophagus. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's so, a little more intense version of a similar thing. Yeah, exactly. And more just widespread. Um, but like most autoimmune diseases, they, there's no consensus on, what causes it and there's no there's no cure for it so the general approach is just to stop the inflammation stop the immune system from attacking itself um so non-steroidal anti-inflammatories will address that like any other anti-inflammatory it just knocks the immune system down a little bit um if that doesn't work they will normally go up a level to the more biologically active drugs. Um, and the, my, my understanding of the pharmacology of IBD drugs is pretty fuzzy, but essentially they just get more and more 
intense and also more and more dangerous as far as the potential side effects and having other like really weakening your immune system and making you more susceptible to colds or anything else like that. Um, and the general pattern is that the first drug that's tried, people will kind of respond to that for a while, go into remission where their symptoms go away for a little bit. Then they'll have a flare up where their symptoms come back. And at some point, generally, the drug stops working. It's not enough to control their symptoms. And at that point, they go up a level to the next tier of drug. And then you just kind of go up and up and up oh, until man. there's nothing left. And then in the case of ulcerative colitis, the next step is surgery to just take out the colon. Because mm. if you don't have a colon, it can't be inflamed, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened to you? That is what happened to me. Again, spoiler, mm -hmm. alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. How many years was it before you got the surgery that you went through this? So for me, it was only two and a half years, which mm. is very short in mm. like, it's, it's unusual um, as far as I know for, well, a couple of things about my case were unusual. Um, the first is that I really never went into remission. Um, like when I was 14, I started having all the symptoms of like, they're really gross symptoms. So I'm sorry, but like bloody diarrhea, horrible cramping, weight loss. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty Probably much the Probably ending up stuff. in the hospital a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So I did not end up in the hospital until later on with oh. surgery complications, but that is super common for people wow. to end up in the hospital just with a bad flare up. Um, cause they might need IV fluids or IV steroids or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. but for me, the first line drug didn't do anything. Second line drug didn't do anything. Third line drug didn't do anything. Um, and kind of throughout that, because they couldn't just let these symptoms run rampant. Um, I was on and off prednisone, which I'm sure mm. most people know is it's a steroid. It's like a glucocorticoid. So it's kind of the drug version of your endogenous cortisol. Mm -hmm. And it's very good at quelling inflammation, which like that is the only drug that ever, ever lessened my symptoms. Um, wow. And it was super necessary for that because I just, I mean, I don't know, maybe I would have died if, if we didn't have that drug. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but as also probably most people know, cortisol and, you know, therefore prednisone, it, it has a dark side too. And most people are probably more familiar with its dark side um, than its role as an anti-inflammatory. But uh, yeah, I mean, from the prednisone, I had all kinds of wonky blood sugar issues. I had horrible anxiety, horrible insomnia. Um, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis because mm. it kind of messes with your bone metabolism. And just, I had like a big old like moon face. My face yeah, was just all like swell up, right? Yeah, yeah. And like really fat. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it was, um, you know, it was, it was rough. And that's eventually why I ended up getting the surgery because I couldn't stay on prednisone forever. Mm -hmm. Nothing else worked. And I was also 
you know, 14. And then at the time of the surgery, I was 17 and I had still never had my period. So that was another concern with the future health of my bones is as a woman, if you're not ovulating, if you don't have normal hormone levels, that also messes with your bone metabolism. And that, and that you're saying is the rarity. Most people sort of build their way up to this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people will be reasonably stable on the first line med for several years. Okay. Yeah. The last thing we talked about, we got interrupted. Sorry. Camera problems, technical difficulties. Um, was that I was asking you about people building their way up to yes. this kind of thing, right? That you were the rare case that mm -hmm. usually people don't go into this intense experience yeah. that you've had. Yeah. Yeah. I just like busted my way through all the levels in two and a half years. And they were like, well, <laughs> we, we gave it the old college try. Time, time wow. to take out your colon. Wow. And by the way, do, do, is it common to get diagnosed so early too? I feel like mostly people in their 20s get it uh, or it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's probably like a, a normal curve kind of thing where the most mm. common is like early 20s. Um, but I wouldn't say it's uncommon to get diagnosed as a teen. Not too. Okay. So it's not too uncommon to get it at that at such an early Yeah. Age. Not too uncommon. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. So Again, it's been almost 15 years since I was diagnosed. And I will say that the biggest change that has happened in the sort of landscape of treatment for IBD has been the microbiome revolution. Because mm. um, you probably remember like sometime in the vicinity of like 2011, 2012, there was just this enormous spike in interest in gut bacteria and the microbiome. Yeah. And like all this research came out and everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is the answer to everything ever. Yeah. Um, I love it how and, like even the, the regular mom that, you know, just knows the word microbiome 10 years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nobody, now I hear every, I'm like microbiome, like, you know, God. yeah, I'm feeding my, I'm feeding my gut pucks. I'm feeding my microbiome. People love <laughs> like the, the, microbiome. the soccer mom in like the yogurt aisle. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though. Right. Like out of all yeah. the possible kind of medical made up terms, it's funny that that one became so pre prevalent. And yeah. Calm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's for good reason because it definitely is a big factor in health and for IBD, it interfaces with obviously your gut, like it's mm -hmm. right there. Um, and it's also interfacing with your immune system. So it kind of hits at the autoimmune component of it and just the location of the disease. Um, so that is, I do suspect that if my case was slightly pushed later in time, such that that knowledge was a little bit more out there. My trajectory might've been a little bit different. There might've been other things to try, like maybe um, like super high dose probiotics. Like there's a prescription called VSL number three that mm. actually ended up helping me later post-surgery when I was still having gut inflammation. Um, but I just mm. didn't know about it pre-surgery. And mm -hmm. same with like fecal microbiota transplant. I tried that for my lingering issues post-surgery, but I wish that I had been able to try it pre-surgery when I still had the, you know, target organ. 
Right. And so, so since we're on that topic, so what else did you try? Did you try oh, man. your diet? You obviously did. So just to, <laughs> just to give us a little touch on what you yeah. did to, to try to heal yourself, you know, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I, even as a 14 year old, I was like, as soon as I was diagnosed and found out that I would just a be sick forever, like there was no cure. I, mm-hmm. I like couldn't process that. It seemed wrong to me. I was like, well, that that's not correct. Like people aren't sick forever. Like mm-hmm. somebody's wrong about that. And I also hated the idea of just taking drugs forever. Like that's not a solution. Like I'm sorry. No, it's <laughs> so, understandable. So yeah, especially as a young kid, it must be fucking tough to hear that. Like forever. That's yeah, it. Yeah, I was. I was just like it was such a, such an impactful paradigm shift. Like I just did not even, it was like, does not compute kind of thing. It wasn't even that I was like upset about it. It was like, like somebody's got wires crossed because like having to take a drug forever, like that's not fixing the problem. Like the problem is just still there. So there's gotta be another answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's gotta be a cure. And the first thing I heard about that could be a cure was diet. And it makes sense, right? My, my little 14 year old brain was like, (laughs) I was so like, uh, self-righteous isn't the word, but just like, I was like, Oh, like silly doctors. Like, why don't they think about nutrition? It's so obvious. Your gut is what's sick and what goes in your gut food. So obviously food is what's causing it. And food is the solution. (laughs) <laughs> obviously I know now that it's not that simple, but when I was 14, I was like, I figured well, it out, you know, hopefully doctor, I'm smarter okay. than the doctors. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. We all go through that trajectory. It's all right. Yeah. It's no big deal. Yeah. But unfortunately the first diet that I came across that said that it would cure this diet claims that it cures colitis and Crohn's, um, was a raw vegan diet mm. from the book, self-healing colitis and Crohn's by Dr. It, David Klein. Klein. Yes. Yeah. And so I, you know it. Yes. And, and, and I've had that book. I think I've sold it somewhere or something, but yeah, it was just one of those common, it was one of those, like the China study kind of books, like everybody yeah. had it, you know? So I got it and yeah, it was basically, as far as I remember, lots of juicing, lots of uh, raw so vegan foods, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And bananas it, a day kind of thing or whatever. Yeah. And it did the whole thing of like, you know, animal products are toxic and they putrefy mm. in your colon. And that's why your colon is inflamed because of the animal proteins putrefying in there. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, I went hard on the raw vegan diet and lasted a month and mm-hmm. then ended up the, Oh, so this is when I ended up in the hospital. Oh, um, okay. It wasn't because of the ulcerative colitis. It was, I was sort of having seizures. Um, Like I remember feeling very off and telling my parents that I felt very off. And then it kind of rapidly um, escalated to the point where like we were already like getting in the car to like drive me to the hospital because I was so like, I'm not okay. Um, and I can't even really explain in what way I wasn't okay. I was just not okay. Um, and, and I remember saying, I need to go to the hospital. 
And it wasn't that I was having any particular symptom that somebody could observe and be like, oh, she needs to go to the hospital. It was like a, like an intuition. And mm. I've really never had that feeling previously or since. So um, it was very, very weird, very interesting. Um, but as I was getting in the car, I remember my dad, like, like kind of supporting my body weight and trying to like put me in the front seat. And I just like lost all control of my muscles and was like, I couldn't even like hold my arms such that he could put his hands like under my, to get any leverage on me. I was just like, I was like in like noodle mode and all my, all my muscles just felt like fuzzy and jittery and like trimmery and I couldn't control any of my muscle movements. Um, so it wasn't quite a seizure, but it was getting there, I guess. Um, so anyway, they brought me back inside, called an ambulance. Um, at some point I lost consciousness. They were trying, they took ages trying to give, like put an IV in me. Um, I was unconscious for a lot of the whole emergency room process. Um, I remember being woken up and handed Tums to eat, I guess, because they were trying to normalize my electrolyte levels and that's how you get calcium. Um, mm. It's like easier than putting it in IV or something. Mm. Um, but yeah, apparently it took them like seven hours to stabilize my condition. And I never got like an official, this is what was wrong with you thing. They just kind of said electrolyte imbalance. And I don't know, like (laughs) something about subsisting on raw juices and raw vegan food for a month really did not agree with me. Yeah. Like 1300 calories a day or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that this very low calorically diet, right? Because it's just like you have to eat like, I don't know. 30 bananas a day. That's why they do that. Cause it's just like not a lot of calories and just raw fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And I was a skeleton. Like I'm, I'm five, seven and I was 80 pounds at this point. Wow. Um, oh for reference, goodness. I'm like 125 pounds now I've been, I've been as heavy as 135 pounds and nobody would have ever called me overweight or even like chubby. Mm-hmm. So I was wow. really, really skeleton, skeleton level. Um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> enough about the so raw vegan ap- ap- thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So maybe sometime soon after that hospital experience, you kind of stopped trying that diet. Yeah. Yes. Mm. <laughs> that, that was finally enough for okay. me to stop having the cope of, oh, I'm just detoxing. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is also um, common thing. Yeah. Yeah. I believed it too. I was like, uh, like just a little longer, just like, then I'll be okay. Yeah. Um, But so then I started a diet called the specific carbohydrate diet. And that was the diet that I stuck to through thick and thin until the surgery, until the colon was gone. Mm. Um, And that one was interesting because it was, it attached so much morality to food. Um, Like it hooked me initially because it made more scientific sense than the raw vegan thing. Um, like really the, the creator of it, Elaine Gottschall was well before her time, as far as she wrote this book in like the 1980s or nineties, which is well before the whole microbiome revolution that we talked about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and yet her whole framework for why people are sick with anything from autoimmune disease to even autism and stuff like that is that it's bad bacteria in the gut, like producing toxins and like a whole vicious cycle thing. Mm. Um, and her solution is to only consume specific carbohydrates because carbohydrates are what feed gut bacteria. Again, this is, that's not really accurate because bacteria can eat proteins as well. Mm. Um, but her, her rationale is that carbohydrates are what feed the gut bacteria. We want to starve the bad bacteria, but we want to nourish ourselves. So, uh, she actually avoided the whole like thing that keto and carnivore do now where it's just like prioritizing, avoiding the pitfalls of carbs and not paying any mind to the possible downfalls of not having carbohydrates for ourselves, for our nourishment. So she actually was pretty like wise in this sense of like, okay, we want to starve the gut bacteria, but we don't want to just deprive the human being of all carbohydrates if we can avoid it. Mm. So we just eat monosaccharides. So that's glucose, fructose, galactose, the single sugars. Mm -hmm. Um, Because her reasoning is that those are absorbed rapidly high up in the gut. So they don't make it low enough into the gut to feed the bacteria. Because we all know that longer carbohydrates and, you know, fibers and stuff like that, things Mm -hmm. that we call prebiotics, especially travel further in the gut and feed bacteria. So that is interesting. She really was ahead of her time because in the eighties and nineties, even early two thousands, I mean, even to this day, most, if you ask the average person from the street, like which carbohydrates you should eat, right. Simple sugars or, or, you know, the complex, everybody would say complex because it's Mm -hmm. complex. And yeah. Yeah. It was very innovative. Um, where, where she went wrong, aside from not really having the full story and not being totally accurate in the actual, like what's going on, which is probably the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said, so much morality mm-hmm. attached to foods, like allowed foods were called legal and non-allowed foods were called illegal. So <laughs> like I, I was 15 at this point and I was like all over the like yahoo groups like those email lists email servers (laughs) for this diet um oh and i was on there with like it was basically all or mostly like older adults who were treating themselves or older adults who were helping their kids who were my age and so it was like all of these adults in this like 15 year old um Mm. (laughs) but yeah like a a common phrase you would see on there is like oh, I ate some illegals today. <laughs> it's just like, in because of the way my personality was, that whole framework really sucked me in and really lodged itself in my brain. Um, but in hindsight, it, like that's such a dysfunctional way to mm. approach food and approach nutrition. Um, all bad <laughs> or all good. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, uh, just to paint a picture of like the, my personality back then, I remember visiting a naturopath and, um, they did like stool tests on me and stuff like that, but 
she was, I was telling her about this diet that I was on and she made the suggestion to like, oh, why don't you try something like white rice or white potatoes? Like maybe, maybe that might help you gain a little bit of weight or, you know, something like that. She didn't, at least I don't remember her giving any good reasons, which if she had given good reasons, I might not have reacted the way that I did. Um, but I lost it. Like I was kind of sobbing inconsolably, like in, in the office and then also in the parking lot, because I was so threatened by this authority figure, A, not understanding what I believed to be like the correct framework for thinking about why I'm sick and how to get better. Mm -hmm. and for suggesting that I just abandon it. Like the thought of, uh, like, that was like my safety net, this, this understanding, this, this framework. And man, I, <laughs> it was pretty bad. <laughs> you can't blame yourself for that. You know, when you're sick, no, I was and young. When you're down yeah. and you're young, it's like, of course, cause you want to figure it out. You don't, yeah. you haven't kind of given up, you know, well, not given up, but I guess you haven't come to full terms that it's, you know, there's something deeper going on here and you're going to need some time. You kind of want it's, that's why people gravitate towards extremes, right? It's like, totally. You want to you find your, your answer, the it. Yeah. 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 So you, so, uh, you follow, did you follow, did you have a point with that diet when you stopped doing that and then moved on to something else and you, no, not just until didn't get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just didn't get better. I was too afraid to try a different diet because nobody, nobody approached me with a better option. Um, mm -hmm. so I wasn't just going to abandon ship until, unless I had, you know, a bigger, better ship to jump over to, like, I don't care if my ship is sinking, <laughs> if I don't mm -hmm. have something to jump onto, mm -hmm. I'm not just going to leave it. Um, so yeah, I stayed on that diet until had the surgery, had the colon taken out, it was horrible. <laughs> the experience <laughs> of it or the post or all of it? The, uh, all of it really. Mm. Um, just to give a brief idea of like what it entails. It's a two-part surgery because they take out the colon and they make a J pouch out of the end of your small intestine, which is like, it's like a fake colon. Um, and, but they can't just have you know fecal matter kind of going all the way through you and like running over all of those fresh wounds in the j pouch so while the j pouch heals they kind of divert your intestines through your abdomen like they poke a hole in your side and poke your intestine through it and cut a hole in your intestine and it poops out into a bag um, and it's called an ostomy. So I had an ostomy bag for two months while my J pouch healed. And, you know, a lot of people are cool with the ostomy life. A lot of people end up with an ostomy for their whole lives because for various reasons, my anatomy did not appreciate it. So I kept my, my intestines kept like pretzeling themselves and mm. I was, in the hospital a ton with blockages. I had to have an emergency surgery to get untwisted. Um, the blockages were horrible because it was basically like, if stuff can't go down, 
it wants to come back up. So I was just like nauseous and vomiting and dry heaving and writhing in pain and don't, <laughs> don't recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I made it through, I survived and it, a lot of my, like the ulcerative colitis went away. So a lot of the like major cramping and major urgency and major bleeding, all of that was kind of knocked down, but I was still left with some very obvious autoimmune tendencies. So I would occasionally get pouchitis, which is essentially the J pouch version of ulcerative colitis. It's like, instead of your colon being inflamed, your new J pouches. So Mm. still with the pain, still with the urgency. Um, I would, I still had psoriasis on my scalp. Um, I had poor healing and recovery. So I was still bleeding like constitutively, like all of the time. I, I just, and they scoped me repeatedly. And even when there was no active inflammation, I just had this like ulcer around the surgery site that refused to heal. Um, and the doctors couldn't do anything about it. Like they tried, uh, like steroid enemas, all kinds of different stuff. And it just wouldn't heal. Um, and a brand new thing that I had to deal with was, which happened immediately after the surgery. Um, I started having what would later be diagnosed as bipolar two. Um, so basically I would have these really like intense depressive episodes and then some periodic shorter, not full mania. Cause that's like bipolar one, but it would be kind of a hypomania state where I would feel really keyed up and like, like anxious and generally really good, like productive and happy and all of that. But like, I wouldn't sleep and I was just kind of in this state of heightened nervous system arousal. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took me a while to even register that I was having like a brand new (laughs) mental health problem because I had never had mental health problems before in my life. Um, And my surgery was first semester senior year of high school. So I missed a whole semester of school And after the surgery, just came back for my final semester of high school. And at that stage in your life, everybody has like senioritis. So everybody's like talking about like, oh, I don't want to do anything. I'm just like procrastinating. And like, Mm -hmm. so, so I was like, oh, I have senioritis. That's, (laughs) that's what this is. (laughs) And then, you know, I started college and it, the senioritis didn't go away. It got worse. No. And finally I did a little Googling. I went to a psychiatrist and it was like, okay. So like, I never really accepted the diagnosis. I did not want to be medicated for it, but I sort of had to like ruefully acknowledge that like, yeah, this is like what I am experiencing is textbook bipolar two. Um, so that was a nice brand new thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in some ways the surgery was like helpful, good, necessary, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but did it cure me? No. No. So you. So basically, it just kind of gave you a new spot for ulcerative colitis. Is that what kind of happened? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's of. like instead of it being in the colon, now it's like in this healing spot. And yeah. More or less. Oh man, and that took you on a whole new journey. It did. Understandably it did. so. And then, um, and what have you been up to lately? How, how did, how did this, where did this take you now? Yeah. Where are you at now? Yeah. So I kind of like after the surgery for a little while, I kind of kept up my previous mode of experimentation. Um, like I, I, I kind of relaxed on the diet thing into paleo, which is paleo is like kind of a liberalized version of specific carbohydrate diet. Um, then I went pro metabolic for a while. I got really into SIBO stuff for a while because without a colon and still experiencing bloating, I was like, well, this makes it easy because bacteria are what make gas and I don't have a large intestine. So it has to be in the small intestine. So therefore it has to be SIBO. So therefore I just need to kill it all. So I did a whole bunch of like antimicrobial protocols. I did a whole like self-experimentation with raw garlic, which was not good. That made weirdly, (laughs) weirdly, it made my depression way worse. Oh man. But yeah. Dr. Rhonda Patrick says that garlic is curable for many things. Oh, <laughs> she does recommend uh, raw garlic for many things. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. There were, there were a lot of people who did. Um, mm. But yeah, for some reason after I like, and I didn't even do it for that long. I did it for like, I don't know, a few days, but like a lot of raw garlic. Um, and then been, you must've smelled delicious. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure my my, my family loved living with me at that point. Um, but I remember like standing at the counter making tuna patties. So I was like wrist deep in like tuna and raw egg and like all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just started crying and I was like, why am I crying? Like, this is weird. This is so weird. And I, I did not know what was going on. Um, a few days later, I randomly like drank some sauerkraut juice. And this is another like random distinct memory I have is like, after drinking the sauerkraut juice, I'm like sitting in my car driving and I'm like, so euphorically happy. And so basically something about the raw garlic made me completely dependent on like external probiotics to like manage my mood. (laughs) So that was weird. Um, yeah yeah wild um and i i tried a bunch of different stuff i I tried a fecal transplant i lived in san francisco for a couple months to be part of a clinical trial Mm -hmm. um and they put me on rifaximin before that and that's another thing that's supposed to be good for SIBO um so i tried all this stuff nothing ever moved the needle um kind of went through a period of nihilism and stagnation i was just like burnt out and could not, I didn't have anything left in me. So I was just like, well, I just have to accept that I am bleeding out of my ass and like have these digestive symptoms and have these like issues and 
I'm just going to have to live my life this way. Mm. And it's only in really, it was only last year that I kind of got a second wind and started experimenting again. And that (laughs) it was so random. The, the thing that sort of launched me back onto this new path where I've actually started making some progress was um, something called the bean protocol, which I found out randomly from this like random fitness influencer that I follow. Um, And I thought it sounded so weird. So I had to look it up and you basically just like eat a bunch of beans. It's supposed to be good to like the, the idea of it is to, for your liver and your bile to like successfully detoxify. Mm. It has to be carried part of it, right? Yeah. It Mm. has to be carried out of your body. Um, so in a way it's kind of the same idea as the repeat carrot salad. Um, the idea is that it binds to the bile so that you poop it out instead of it being reabsorbed and recirculating. Um, so anyway, like I'll try that go beans. Fuck me up. I mean, I love them. Like I love the taste. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it was so counterintuitive to try. Um, but it's, and I posted on Instagram about this, but it's the best I've felt in a very long time. And in hindsight, a lot of my feeling, well, I'm trying to figure out what order to Mm. talk about this in. So one thing I noticed while I was doing the bean protocol is that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with like aura rings, they like Mm -hmm. track your heart rate, heart rate variability, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I happened to notice on my aura data that when I started the bean protocol, my heart rate variability, which I had never been aware of before, went from being totally in the toilet, like in the 20s, to being like kind of normal, like in the 60s or 70s, the the chart was like, Hmm. and I was like, whoa, that's like, that's a change. And as somebody who had like spent a decade experimenting and never noticed really any effect of anything that I did, I was like, okay, this did something and higher heart rate variability is good and et cetera, et cetera. So I got on this whole, this is how I got into the world of nervous system retraining because it's the autonomic nervous system that controls your, well, a lot of things control your heart rate, but heart rate variability is generally thought to be the effect of the varying parasympathetic impulses to your heart. And And could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah. So basically your, your heart has a steady rate that it beats at without any external influence, which varies by person, but is often quoted to be around a hundred beats per minute. Mm -hmm. So that's higher than a healthy resting heart rate. So parasympathetic, so your, your autonomic nervous system has the parasympathetic branch, which people call the rest and digest branch. And it has the sympathetic branch, which people call the fight or flight branch. Mm-hmm. Um, parasympathetic nerves to the heart, slow it down. Sympathetic nerves to the heart, speed it up. Um, so generally, if you're at rest, there's a resting tone, resting parasympathetic tone to the heart to keep it at a lower level than that hundred beats per minute, because 
you're not doing anything, your heart doesn't need to be beating that fast. It's like a, an energy conservation thing that your body does, Mm -hmm. but several factors make it such that that nervous input is rhythmic rather than static. So your heart rate isn't like a steady metronome. It, the, the biggest source of variation is with your breath. So when you inhale, your heart rate speeds up. And when you exhale, your heart rate slows down. Um, and it gets way more complicated from there, but that's kind of the basics. Mm -hmm. So heart rate variability is often taken to be a measure of, well, some people take it as a measure of parasympathetic tone in general, like the very simplistic way of looking at it is like, oh, if your heart rate variability is low, that means that your parasympathetic nervous system is not that active and you're in a state of stress rather than a state of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot more I could say about that, but Mm -hmm. it definitely got me thinking down the lines of, huh, what if the reason that I'm not healing and not recovering well is because my nervous system is just tuned to this state of stress rather than recovery. Hmm. So, and this all started with a bean protocol, literally. Yeah. So then, random. So and random. Been, and you've been tracking it on your aura ring and mm-hmm. you noticed that there's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And in hindsight, I, I actually have found the increased soluble fiber to be really helpful for me. And my diet is still kind of bean protocol ish. Um, Mm -hmm. I stopped doing like the strict thing a while ago, but in hindsight, I think the, the reason I saw the big change was because I was actually just not eating enough. And cause one of the weird things with the bean protocol is to like keep fat away from beans. Cause it's Mm -hmm. like the soluble fiber will bind to the fat. So then it can't bind to the bile. So then it's like not binding to the bile in your gut. I, to this day, don't know how based in reality that is, but that's what they say. So so meaning you don't want to cook them in a bunch of butter or whatever. Yeah, that's what they say. Um, Mm. But anyway, so I was not, I was just not eating enough. So my, my hands and feet were really cold all the time. So I think my metabolism was just kind of lower and my, uh, so as the heart rate variability went up, if I look at the trends for just resting heart rate, it went way down. Um, and one of the sort of finicky things about thinking about heart rate variability is there are, there are different ways to measure it. And the way that aura measures it, which is the RMSSD, it's, I can't remember what it stands for right now. It's a mathematic. Um, but it is mathematically dependent on just the heart rate in general. So lower resting heart rate leaves more room for variability in a sense. So so it's a good thing to have a lower resting heart rate. That's again, something. Yes. Again, I'm not saying that it should be dead, right? I, yeah. I, I, we're not being black and white here, but it seems to be that that's the trend, right? That if it's a little bit towards the lower range, not like the crazy, I don't know, some whatever free divers have it at like 40, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So that's something that I actually really want to look into. And is one of my ongoing projects, because of course the pro metabolic people are like, 
you mm. want your pulse rate higher because that's indicative of a higher metabolism. Yeah. No, well, and, no, they say that because they just listen to Ray Pete and they have, don't, they don't really have any opinions of their own, but you know, <laughs> yeah, um, but that is an interesting thing, right? Because that yeah, is the yeah. difference. I'm, I'm being yeah. And then like, you know, sort of the general, the general consensus of like people who are into fitness and people who are into cardiovascular health. It's like, yeah, you want lower resting heart rate and that's a sign of health. Right. Um, right. But for me, definitely the lower heart rate was paired with things like cold hands and feet, but the higher heart rate was paired with things like not being able to fall asleep at night if I ate too close to bed, because mm -hmm. I could like feel my heart pounding in my ears. So mm -hmm. all of these, th so I, I think that's part of why I felt better because my nervous system was in a sense calmed down a little bit, mm -hmm. but it was because I wasn't eating enough. So like so some things got better, some things there. got worse. Mm -hmm. um, and so where did this new path take you? So I like changed my, my, I had like a whole paradigm shift and my new goal was rewire my nervous system to be in rest and digest mode. Mm -hmm. And through randomly Googling stuff about how to rewire the autonomic nervous system, I came across a program called DNRS, which stands for dynamic neural retraining system. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of funny because it doesn't, in a way it's sort of sold as like, yeah, this will rewire your autonomic nervous system, but it also kind of doesn't. Um, but I didn't really know enough at that point to understand the distinction. So I just, I just sent it. I was like, I'm doing this, pay the $350, commit to the six months. I'm doing oh, wow. it. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what and are you paying for, for, for the actual, you're paying for basically three full days of videos hmm. to teach you about the principles behind the program and how to implement the daily practice to do it essentially. So you have three days of videos and then you're just on your own. But the idea is that you've committed to this process for six months and you do the practice for an hour a day for six months. Mm -hmm. And what has been your experience with this? So my experience has been very, very good. Um, truly it has completely changed the way that I think about health just at all levels. Wow. And it's, going to sound like it's very cliche to be like, oh, everything's connected. Like your emotions and your mind and your body, like it's all connected. Like that's very cliche. Yes. Um, and I also think it's very true. And, but I think that the way many people approach it is kind of haphazard and abstract. Um, and through this process and also through just pulling from all the different things that I've read and different things that I've experienced, I've sort of, I now have in my head a different framework for thinking about health in a way that is based around the nervous system. Um, 
And if you are amenable to it, I will try to share that framework now um, because I think that it can be like, for me, it was a revolutionary paradigm shift. And I'll, I'll get into this more later about like what I've experienced in progress and stuff, but Mm -hmm. I, to get to that point, it was so necessary for me to have this paradigm shift of thinking about things differently. Um, so like for one thing, when, when you hear nervous system, most people probably think like neck down, right? But the brain is part of the nervous system. Like people tend to think about the brain as like, oh, that's the realm of psychology. The, there's like the brain and then there's the nervous system. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's all one system. It's all made of the same stuff. It's all nerve tissue. And it all kind of functions similarly. So you have your central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord. And you have your peripheral nervous system, which is your autonomic nervous system, which again, is that parasympathetic, sympathetic. It controls all the stuff that you're not conscious of. So like your visceral organs, your, your heart rate, secretions from glands, um, all, all that kind of stuff, sweating, stuff like that. Um, and then your somatic nervous system is all of the stuff that you're consciously aware of. So your conscious muscle movements, your conscious perceptions, like hearing and smell and like touch, all of that. Um, so, you know, very different systems in their location in a way in in what they interact with Mm -hmm. but the nervous system functions on a certain set of principles and that is patterns so like patterns habits and because of that repetition so if you think about learning for instance if you're learning a new thing at first it's it's a brand new thing. You have to put all of your conscious attention into doing this new thing. Mm-hmm. Then you repeat it. You do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. Then it becomes autopilot. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. It mm-hmm. enter. It goes from the realm of being conscious effort to being autopilot. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I've started thinking about this is just think about the development of a human, right? From when they're a baby all the way up to when they're an adult. You can kind of think about that as the layers of the nervous system, each in turn going through that process. So babies are born without a fully mature autonomic nervous system. Like they aren't really able to regulate their they aren't really able to maintain homeostasis on their own. Like they aren't, they aren't quite able to regulate their, their heart rate and their breathing and their temperature, stuff like that. That's why things like skin to skin contact and, you know, being very close to the mother, eating very frequently, but very small amounts, all of that's very important for a baby because their autonomic nervous system is still learning how to contend with the environment, how to maintain homeostasis for those functions that as an adult become automatic. Mm -hmm. And then when you're a kid, 
you know, like two, three, four, you're kind of at the next level up of nervous system learning where they're learning how to contend with their emotions. Like they're going through this process of, you know, having total meltdowns in response to things that we see as like really silly, like, oh my gosh, the banana broke in half or like, oh, I wanted, I wanted the purple cup and you gave me the purple cup and now I'm <laughs> losing it because why? A different color cup. You don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's where they don't yet know how to make sense of or self-regulate their emotions. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what the parent does. The parent is there to teach them how to like teach them, oh, the way that you're feeling right now is anger. Like you're feeling very angry. And this is how you can deal with anger. This is, you know, a healthy coping mechanism for anger. This is not a healthy co coping mechanism. Like, oh, you can scream into this pillow, but you can't bite me or you can't punch mm. your sister. <laughs> um, and, you know, through that process, it's, it's not natural. It's not, um, it's not ingrained and it gradually becomes natural and ingrained so that in theory, when you're a, an adult, if you're a well-adjusted adult, you don't really have to consciously think each time you get angry, like, oh, okay, I'm really angry, but I, I can't punch this person right now in the meeting, in like the business office. Like, it's just, it's just natural. You're just not going to do that. Um, so, and then as an adult, you can see it in your daily habits, right? Like, the only thing, like what enables us as humans to advance and to introduce more complexity and productivity into our lives, certain things have to become automatic. And that's what happens with learning. And that's what happens with your daily habits. Those things become automatic. So then you have room for your whatever conscious voluntary executive function to learn new patterns, to think about new things. Um, and so anyway, the, again, people think about the different arms of the nervous system as totally different worlds, but they're, they're the same. Like they function the same way. They function based on the same principles. And those are principles that can be understood and they're principles that can be manipulated and targeted. Um, Cause really the only difference is what this, like all, so all parts of the nervous system, like it's function is essentially communication. It's conveyance of information. Um, the language is the same. It's just nerve impulses. The difference is the sender and the receiver. So like, the autonomic nervous system, the senders and receivers are your viscera and your brainstem. For the somatic nervous system, the sender and receiver are your environment and your brain. Because think about it, if I think, so I'm sending that I wanna pick up my phone right now, the receiver isn't me, it's the environment. Like my phone has just received that nerve impulse because I picked it up. And likewise, on, you know, the other, the other direction, the sender can be this table. It's sending smoothness, a sensation of smoothness as I touch it to my brain. Um, 
And then of course, when you get into the brain, everything's connected to everything else. So there's all kind of sending and all kind of receiving all happening at the same time. Um, but again, it's the nervous system works in predictable, understandable ways that allow us to interface with our environment and essentially decide how to adapt to it. Um, and the reason it matters so much for health is, so how, how would you define health? There's a question, because oh, I feel a... like this is something that seems like it should be obvious, but, yeah, but it's not. people don't necessarily <laughs> know how to answer it. Yeah, you know, I did a podcast with Camille Julia, my last podcast, and um, she said, uh, what did she say? She said inner inner peace, sort of, or, or, you know, I mean, that's pretty good, you know? I think it's just that, that sort of feeling of... Um, yeah, not 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 being. Yeah, I mean, inner peace is pretty good, honestly. That's probably it's pretty yeah. good. But but again, even that can be broken down into something like, oh, what do you mean? So if you're having a hard time in life, it's like you're not healthy. Well, it's like, well, no, I guess I I, I don't know. Maybe maybe being maybe having inner peace, but having the ability to deal with, you know, everyday issues and problems that will arise one hundred percent. Whether yeah. They be so like resiliency, resilient. Yeah. 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 I think resiliency. ability to adapt and overcome and become mm -hmm. stronger in response to stimuli. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, sadly, it's like, it, that's also not infinite, right? Because I mean, hopefully everyone believes we die. So because <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't die. Right. Because if that was just infinite, you know, right, I mean, yeah. maybe some people don't, but that because that also my point is that also can be kind of broken down but yeah resiliency yeah. is a big part and feeling at an inner maybe calmness mm -hmm. um is also another aspect of it yeah what do you think i yeah weirdly as um as sort of cliche and empty inner peace might sound on the face of it i actually kind of agree um and i have like really extensive and convoluted reasons for that, that I won't get into on this podcast, because it would be way too out of scope. But the way that I've started to think about health is that it has two components, the environment and your ability to adapt to it. So mm. if you, and both of those things need to be in order. So your environment needs to be healthy and you need to be adapted to it. Because mm -hmm you know, if, if either of those things is messed up, you're, you're going to be messed up. So even if your environment's healthy, if you are not adapted to it, you're, you're sick. So that was, that was, and has been the case with me and a lot of other people with chronic illness for a long time is that their, their food's dialed in, their movement's dialed in, they're like, they have enough stuff. There's no scarcity. They're safe. They're like, mm -hmm if you dropped a caveman into their life, the caveman would be totally fine. But for some reason, mm -hmm. their bodies are like out of whack still. Um, yeah. But then on the other hand, if you're perfectly adapted to your environment, but your environment is unhealthy and unsuitable for a human, you're also not going to be healthy. So like, for instance, like posture, like anybody who has bad posture, their body is just adapting to their environment. Like it's, it's doing mm. what it is 
you know, built to do, to adapt to, to like prioritize strengths and movements and positions that are demanded of it more often and Mm -hmm. yada, yada. But if through that, we kind of learn that, okay, sitting in a chair for the entire day and never moving must not be a suitable environment for a human because humans who have adapted to that situation aren't well. (laughs) They have aches, they have pains, they have limited movement, that kind of thing. Whether it's conscious or unconscious because it happens both ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think a lot can be illuminated by thinking about health in terms of those two components and thinking about it from the standpoint of, okay, what is necessary to achieve the healthy environment and the healthy adapted human? Mm-hmm. And I, I made a chart, which okay. <laughs> this, this may or may not be helpful for people, but basically if you think about what's necessary for environmental health, right? You kind mm-hmm. of have to have not like you have to have knowledge about like what is a healthy environment. Um, you here, let me back up a little bit. It's so thinking about it in terms of nervous system, the nervous system is about communication, right? So what communication, what information content is there in this external environment and internal human being thing? So Mm -hmm. there's just knowledge and beliefs about the situation. So for instance, like questions like, what is a healthy environment? What are the logical relationships between the components of the environment? Essentially, how does the world work? And then on the internal side, what is a healthy human? What is human nature? What are the relationships between like parts of myself and other parts of myself? Essentially, how do humans work? Like what's the conceptual framework in which we can even think about and understand these things? Then at the next level, there's perception. So you have to be able to accurately perceive your environment and also accurately perceive what's going on inside of you. And then at the next level, there's interpretation. And this is where our sort of humanness comes in. Because the first two things don't really have like values attached to them necessarily. Like for instance, at the perception level, you can sense how many resources your environment has. You can sense how many resources you have, like inside of you as a person. Mm-hmm. You can sense the level of challenge that your environment poses to you. But those things don't really mean anything until some part of your nervous system interprets it. So essentially asking the question, what does this situation that I'm perceiving, either from my external world or my internal world, what does this mean for my well-being? Hmm. And this is where people start talking about threat detection. And that's a very common thing to talk about when it comes to nervous system health. Um, But after interpretation, there's also judgment, which is asking the question, what should I do about it? 
And those two things are pretty closely paired. So the interpretation, what does this mean for my well-being, is really closely paired to what should I do about it. And just to make this a little bit more concrete, there's, you know, you can, if you're perceiving the resource level and the challenge level of your environment, um, you can be in a scarcity you on the on the resources axis that you can be in a state of scarcity mm-hmm. or abundance on the challenge axis you can be in a state of threat or non-threat and this is where you start kind of getting into dysfunctions can be introduced um and then you know after that there's the execution so what you actually do externally with your environment or what your body internally does so that framework kind of set, I can sort of talk about my, my notes. I can talk about what DNRS kind of is based on. So DNRS, let me back up. The way that people think about disease most commonly is that there's a problem with their environment and they need to fix it to be healthy. So like changing their diet, changing their exercise, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. DNRS makes the kind of bold claim that a whole slew of chronic diseases, there's not actually necessarily really a problem. The dysfunction is in the threat detection place of the mind. So essentially that interpretation and judgment area, mm-hmm. or it's the body's autopilot. Mm-hmm. Those parts of the nervous system that have been programmed, they're just stuck in a dysfunctional pattern. Like whatever mm-hmm. the threat was, whatever the situation was that initially created that pattern is gone, mm-hmm. but it's still stuck in the pattern. Yeah. So you can see this with people sort of like, let's say, um, you know, people that grew up in a fucked up home environment, right? Yeah. We, we all kind of, I think in extreme cases, people notice those things, but I think they don't think about it too often otherwise, because it's like, you know, in extreme fucked up situations, it's kind of like, oh, well, he grew up in a whatever terrible household. And this is why he's like that. But it's like, that could be applied to a lot of things. It doesn't have to be so extreme, right? It could be, like you said, maybe, Maybe you grew up in a terrible diet. Maybe your parents gave you a, ter- a terrible diet or a vegan diet or whatever. It's not the the actual thing that matters. It just matters that how people, how a lot of times those programs do get written into people, right? Or however you want to put it. Um, and then you yeah. see that as they're older. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so like that's the sort kind of what of, you're saying, right? Sort of. And it can, mm-hmm. like, you're kind of talking about, well, you were kind of talking about like at an emotional level or at a, dietary level, but like this, these stuck patterns can happen at the physiological level. They can happen Mm -hmm. at the emotional level. They can happen at the cognitive level Mm -hmm. and everything reinforces everything else. So that's why you kind of get stuck in these cycles. Mm -hmm. So the, the quintessential DNRS condition that the creator of it initially had and created the program to address is multiple chemical sensitivities. So people who 
will, you know, walk down the detergent aisle in a food lion and break out in hives and like their bodies are just like freaking out about Mm -hmm. this like scent chemical that obviously doesn't pose, like maybe it's not like the best, greatest thing ever to like breathe in a ton of, um, but the vast majority of people are totally fine and totally healthy being exposed to these things. Mm -hmm. So she, the, the creator of the program was like, okay, there's the problem is in the threat detection. It's your body is sensing like it's correctly sensing the environment. It's correctly sensing that there's this chemical here, but mm-hmm. it is incorrectly determining that it's a threat to you and is therefore incorrectly executing all of these like defensive physiological programs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same for any kind of allergy, any kind of sensitivity. Um, like, you know, people with severe peanut allergies, obviously peanuts are not a threatening item to humans like most humans can eat Mm -hmm. peanuts but Mm -hmm. people with peanut allergies their bodies think that peanuts are so so threatening right um so does this program deal with those sort of things does it suggest that maybe people can get rid of their allergies say or address them or deal with absolutely yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um and it also deals with so that's kind of a those are kind of patterns of response, right? Patterns of response and response to a stimulus. Um, But then there are also patterns that are just kind of habitual. Um, For instance, autoimmunity, like that's a pattern of your body being in chronic immune activation, even when there's nothing to defend against. And this is, you know, the, the question of how accurate that characterization of these illnesses is could be debated and that's another topic Mm -hmm. but if if this is correct if this is really just a problem of threat detection and stuck habits these things can be fixed with the knowledge of how the nervous system works which is again essentially through learning and threat detection so if you can signal safety to the nervous system so Mm -hmm. signal that it's not threatened, signal that it has enough resources. And then B, just repeat, like break the patterns that you don't want and ingrain the patterns that you do. Mm-hmm. Then in theory, you're healed. Mm. And so many people have healed from just absolutely debilitating anything from you know chronic Lyme to uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome to multiple chemical sensitivities to chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, hmm. anxiety, all kinds of things. So and how about you? Yeah. So let's get to the juicy part. <laughs> how have you applied this to yourself? I, so it was a little tricky to figure out how to apply to me because the idea of the program again is to signal safety as often as you can mm-hmm. and to repeatedly pair triggers with either better habits and or signals of safety mm-hmm. so my stuff i didn't really have any specific triggers um the one trigger that i 
thought I had was gluten. So that's kind of where I started. I was like, okay, I'm going to retrain around being able to eat gluten. And at the beginning, I was so afraid of this food that even just thinking about eating a slice of normal pizza or something would trigger me. Like I would feel anxious. I would feel like just not good. Um, and the strategies DNRS employs to, you know, signal safety are actually like, it really kind of only uses one strategy, which is essentially visualization. So you're trying to create an emotional landscape of positive, relaxed emotions via visualization. It's Mm -hmm. super simple. Um, and you're also just trying to notice any patterns in your life, whether it's behaviors or thoughts or anything like that and do whatever you can to interrupt them. So for me, this looked like anytime I was, anytime I felt triggered. So (laughs) I was very lucky at the time to have people in my life who would regularly trigger me in conversation, just, you know, just like, you know, feeling misunderstood or feeling attacked or whatever. Mm -hmm. And with DNRS, I was like, oh, I'm triggered. Awesome. Let me go like do my practice. Um, and then like, so I would just basically do that anytime I felt triggered. So imagining eating gluten or, um, eating in general or dealing with doctors or orthodontists, because I would get from all my health history, I would feel so defensive and Mm -hmm. threatened by those people. Just like not trusting that they had my best interests in mind. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that feeling that you get when you are kind of, kind of prickly, kind of guarded, Mm -hmm. kind of like, eh. I feel the same way about going to doctors. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So like after a while, you kind of notice what Mm -hmm. it feels like to be triggered. And anytime, it doesn't even matter what the trigger is. Anytime you're in that state, you just do whatever you can to bring yourself back into a state of kind of openness and calm. Mm -hmm. And again, emotionally, that's what DNRS focuses on. And that's kind of what I did. And eight months in, I eight months in one hour a day or, or give or take, right. But okay. Daily, daily practice, eight months Mm -hmm. straight. Okay. Yep. I noticed a huge shift and I would notice kind of little things that kind of goes like this ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of felt all of a sudden like, okay, hold on. Things, things are different in my brain. Mm-hmm. And this is everything from like, I, I'm rarely triggered anymore. Like people can, people can like misunderstand me. They can insinuate that, you know, I'm a bad person or did something wrong, or, uh, I can encounter something that totally like conflicts with the way I understand the world. Um, all of these like emotional things that I would previously feel kind of activated by, I'm just like, cool as a cucumber. Um, no more like background rumination, no more like 
dwelling on things that have happened that other people have said, um, some, some more concrete things that people might understand are, uh, no more overeating or like not quite binging, but in the past, I, one of the enduring symptoms of my depressive episodes would be this compulsive need to like eat certain foods, like chocolate was a big one. Um, any kind of comfort foods, stressing and right? people. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Emotional mm-hmm. eating. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it was so weird. Cause like, I didn't really want the food. I didn't feel good after, but it, it felt like a compulsion mm-hmm. that's gone. I, mm-hmm. I noticed it when I had a bag of chocolate chips, like half used in my pantry for like two months. And I was just like, I can mm. keep chocolate in the house now. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's so weird. Um, I like I've become more generous, which mm. like I as I'm talking, I feel like all of these things don't sound like big things, but I can't overemphasize the difference in experience that it is living in my brain. Like mm-hmm. it is an entirely different landscape. Like I, I got home from a trip one day and like, just felt the urge to do a few like random nice things for some friends and help some people out. Um, I almost cried because it felt so good to just feel like a generous person because I've never, I've never felt like a generous person. I've just always had this sort of feeling of I got to look out for myself. Like I don't have enough. I don't have enough of whatever, whatever it is, time, resources, what have you. So to just feel this natural difference, it was just, it's little things like that, that are like, oh, wow. Like something really has changed. Um, Mm. And like you said earlier, and when we were talking about what health means, it's, you know, the ability to resilience, essentially the ability to confront things that happen to us in the world and not only deal with them and recover from them, but actually come back stronger. Mm -hmm. And in the last, so this is now like month 11 of my DNRS journey. And over the last few months, I have had greater emotional demands on me gone through probably the most intense emotional pain and just angst and just a lot of personal stuff going on just Mm -hmm. you know so happened of my whole life and I you know as it was happening I was kind of like oh my god like how am I ever going to recover from this yada yada and afterwards I recovered and I felt okay And it's kind of been this really weird process of like, I don't know, almost if you think about having a physical injury and then it's healed, you're sort of like, you're used to it hurting. So you're kind Mm -hmm. of like gently like testing it out and gradually like, oh, wow, like I can, I can really use my foot again. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of been that sort of process with my emotional and mental landscape of like kind of poking around in my brain, like like, wow, am I, am I really okay? Like, Mm -hmm. does this really not bother me? Do I really feel like good? 
and Mm -hmm. it's it's very difficult to describe and explain and I cannot overstate how like transformational it has been Mm -hmm. and as far as physical symptoms what about your physical yeah so that is what's so interesting about this process is that I started it to address my physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. I never thought that I had emotional or mental issues. I mean, the bipolar thing, whatever, even with that, I was like, it's fine. Like I've got it handled. Mm -hmm. I just never identified as somebody who had like mental issues to deal with. Um, so it was so surprising and unexpected to go on this whole journey. Um, but it kind of makes sense because the strategies I was using were kind of cognitive and emotionally focused. And what I have felt recently is, yes, I have started to see physical progress. Like there are certain things that are like hard successes. Like for instance, I eat whatever I want now. I eat gluten and I don't have any problem with it. Wow. I'm hesitant to call that a physical victory because I, as confident as I am about saying like, yes, I have had a significant mental and emotional shift. I feel like I'm not quite there with the physical yet, Um, but I feel like I'm on the right track. I suspect with the gluten that either it became not a problem after the surgery and I was just too afraid to try it for the decade since then. Mm-hmm. And I finally, you know, unwound all of the emotional stuff that was going on that enabled me to eat it again, mm-hmm. in which case that's kind of still a victory. Um, or maybe it was never even a problem with me to begin with. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I really like, I think that's possible. Um, but like, there are little things. So like, I haven't had a pouchitis episode since starting the program. Um, I've seen noticeably less bleeding, um, seems to be less, actually definitely less psoriasis. So less autoimmune activation in general. Um, I seem to be recovering better from workouts and actually building muscle instead of just getting injured. Um, I 100% feel better in my body, like just relaxed and more, I don't know, just better Mm -hmm. day to day throughout Mm -hmm. the day. Um, but I have, I, I still think that most of those are probably like, I, I don't think that I've had my physical shift yet. Like, I don't think that I'm yet Mm -hmm. healed, but I do think I'm on the right track and I've changed my approach. And this is where I think a zoomed out more expansive framework for nervous system rewiring is needed Mm -hmm. because again, DNRS is kind of very focused on certain conditions and certain tools. Whereas if you have the right framework, almost anything can be a tool if you just know how to use it. So if I'm trying to heal, reprogram my 
lower nervous systems, like the autonomic nervous system and the somatic nervous system, it's going to make a lot more sense if I speak in their language to, Hmm. you know, so to speak. So for instance, rather than, you know, trying to do stuff with my emotions and my thoughts all up in here, speak in a language that they can understand. So that means like warmth and touch and basic things like that, that is interacting with those nerves directly. So mm-hmm. again, the, the approach is the same. You're still trying to signal safety and you're still trying to interrupt dysfunctional patterns and program functional patterns, but the ways that you would signal safety to the autonomic nervous system is stuff like keeping your temperature regulated. So not relying on your own nervous system to like deal with huge temperature fluctuations. So Mm -hmm. being really cognizant of like, oh, if my feet are cold, like put a heater on them. I I used (laughs) to have this like this idea that I had all of these really strong, like, like oughts and shoulds about Mm -hmm. how my body, like what my body should be capable of. Like I'm a grown ass adult. My body should be able to keep its own feet warm or like I'm a grown ass adult. I shouldn't have to snack between meals. Like my body should be fine eating three square meals a day. Mm -hmm. Um, but rid of those expectations and just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been, (laughs) they're such small things, but this is the first time in my life where I feel noticeable improvements every single day, Mm -hmm. just being consistent with helping my body out wherever I can to, you know, keep my blood sugar kind of balanced throughout the day, rather than have making it deal with these big fluctuations. Cause again, Mm -hmm. a fully functional, well-adjusted adult should be able to do cold plunges and eat only a couple times a day and whatever. Like those are parts of being a strong, healthy, functioning adult. Mm -hmm. But if you've got some dysfunction, if you're trying to heal, you got to meet your body where it's at. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of the approach that I'm taking now. And um, what's so funny is the last big pouchitis flare that I had, it was like a little over a year ago. Um, I, it was, it was awful. I had awful pain, really bad bleeding, was having to get up like six times a night to go to the bathroom. Um, and I was so frustrated and confused because I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't eat anything weird. Like, why is my body doing this? Mm. Um, and like the thing that I had done the day before, so like immediate temporal relation is I had, been out and about. I I had a date. I had a baby shower. Um, I didn't eat anything bad. I didn't eat any gluten, but I didn't quite eat enough. And I was kind of cold all day. And Mm. I was kind of emotionally down. Like I didn't really feel a lot of hope at the date. I felt a little bit isolated at the baby shower. Like, oh man, like I'm Mm -hmm. I'm all alone. I don't have a baby. Mm -hmm. And so in hindsight, my body was telling me the things that stress it out. It was stressed out being cold. It was stressed out not having enough food. Mm. It was stressed out feeling hopeless and sad and isolated. And I, I spent all of these years like kind of 
assuming that I knew what was best for it or what it needed for me being like, oh, like I'm not giving it any bad food. So therefore. Yeah. Do what you're told. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. but all this, despite never having really any positive feedback from my body for mm. doing these different diets and these times where it would very clearly communicate to me instead of like taking that information on board and being like, huh, interesting. Maybe mm. this means something. I would be like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> Why doesn't the world make sense? Why doesn't my body make sense? Well, sadly, I think we're not really encouraged to think about these things whatsoever. We are kind yeah. of encouraged to think that three square meals, eight hours of sleep, uh, don't drink too much alcohol. Uh, yeah, really basic, basic stuff. stuff. Yeah, which is which is fine advice. It's not like it's useless advice, but as you said, it's like you could do all those things, yeah, and then have the worst day of your life, and your body will probably respond to it, right? Yeah. So, and then. Also, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't mention this, but the thing that happened immediately prior to me getting sick is that I became vegetarian mm -hmm. for no reason. I just, you know, thought I was told that it was the good, correct, right thing to do for your health, for the environment, for the animals. And I, you know, I was this like skinny, healthy 14 year old girl, but I was like, you know, I was, I was, I was like throwing away my egg yolks and not eating meat and, you know, <laughs> just like putting all of these restrictions on my food mm -hmm. because of some external instruction morality framework. And in hindsight, again, the temporal relationship between that happening and me getting sick was, it was right there. Mm. my body didn't like that mm -hmm. and then is it really any wonder that I never went into remission when my mm. response to being sick was to do that same thing harder it's <laughs> like oh I'll just pick a different externally dictated morally laden restrictive mm. dietary framework to impose on my body yeah. Um, which is very difficult to even live with, even if you're not experiencing yeah. any symptoms. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's hard. You'll go to a restaurant and there's not a lot of vegan food or vegetarian food. And it's just like, yeah, because most yeah. people don't, don't do that. So, yeah. So, and that is one of the biggest things that shifted with my DNRS work is mm -hmm. I don't have these orthorexic habits anymore. I don't restrict my food. I don't have any idea of like what's good or what's bad I don't um mm -hmm. you know none of that stuff and it's really I feel like that shift which was essentially a mental and emotional shift was crucial for setting me up on the right path to actually make progress with my physical health so in a sense this is like a like a, like an interim analysis. It's mm -hmm. like such a weird way to put it. Mm -hmm. I work in clinical research. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is like a, okay. I've had these like astoundingly life-changing impacts on certain levels of my nervous system. So my mental and emotional health are just better than they've ever been and better than I even thought that they could be. Um, and I am making progress with my 
physical stuff. And for the first time ever, things actually make sense. So stay tuned. Yeah. I we, hope to we would be love, reporting back. Yes. I was just going to say, we would love to check up with you in a yeah. few months and do this again. Seriously. Yeah. And where can people find out about this program? What's just the simplest, easiest way for them to access it? So they could just Google DNRS. And by the way, you don't, you're not like affiliated. You're not like working no. for them just to just, you know, because people yeah. are, you know, yeah. you're not, not one of their counselors them. or whatever. No, I'm not. And <laughs> just the something that you found is, through randomly Googling, yeah, right? I just randomly found it. And I think that there's a great need for a more comprehensive and targeted framework, both for understanding disease at all the different levels and also mm-hmm selecting the right tools for the job and thus like i i'm not aware that something like that exists so mm-hmm. if people follow along with me they'll probably see me trying to hammer out something like that just little mm-hmm. by little um but for now and that's the other tough thing i've i've recommended dnrs to a lot of people but with the caveat that it will like the concepts are good the tools can be helpful but I really, really think that it needs to be like personalized and amended to the different things. And mm-hmm. that just doesn't exist yet. But anyway, with those disclaimers, um, they can just Google DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System. Okay. I also have a, a blog post on my website that lists out all of the different nervous system retraining programs that I'm aware of. There are a okay. lot. Um, A lot of them are like copycats of each other. Mm -hmm. I don't know Mm -hmm. if DNRS was the original and other people ripped it off or vice versa, Mm -hmm. but my website's alyssaluck.com and it's on there. And yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, I think it's Mm -hmm. alyssa.luck. I'll link you up. Cool. Yeah. I'll probably be talking about this stuff a lot more because like I said, I think that this way of approaching health is just incredibly powerful and has incredible potential and Mm -hmm. has a lot of myths around it and needs needs some targeting and some fine-tuning but Mm -hmm. uh I don't know I I find it very exciting to yeah well it's exciting for me as like I said just to hear this from somebody that just found it through random Googling. You know what I'm saying? Because usually you hear these things, it's like I said, they're a practitioner or they're Mm. selling it to you or they're affiliated with you. Not that that's necessarily a a bad thing, right? Because maybe you you do become affiliated with them somehow because you love the program, but I'm just saying- I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just saying it does make a great, you know, thing that you're just, uh, you just found this out and uh, it's been working for you. And so with that said, uh, we'll be looking forward to having you on the show again. So we can update on what's going yes. on and yes. I will link uh, your blog post website and everything else that's there. And um, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Cool. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Things you own end up owning you.